Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. Hey friends, before we begin the episode, I want to remind you that my next six-week course begins on February 21st. Registration opens on January 19th and closes one week afterwards. I will be hosting a free webinar on Wednesday, January 19th with a Q&A to describe the course and answer any questions you might have. For more information, visit holisticlifenavigation.com. Now let's get back to the episode. On today's episode, I welcome my friend Kareen Bell. Honestly, just to talk. We have a great conversation and I wanted you to hear it. And I think this very much challenges a a sort of so-called Western idea or paradigm that that these kinds of things are discovered, <laughs> right? Like someone plants a flag and they've figured something out. No, maybe they have articulated something that is so fundamentally human. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast. I'm your host. Luis Mujica. I was sick and depressed until I discovered that I could make music, and then my whole life transformed because I began learning how to listen more deeply, listen to life, to the people around me, and to my body. And that's when I realized that the body speaks through sensations, and learning this new language meant relearning my body and mind. I soon healed myself of many chronic conditions and then began teaching others how to do so as well. 
Holistic Life Navigation combines nutrition, self-inquiry, and somatic experiencing to help you release stress and trauma just by listening to your own body. This podcast serves as a place to share my experiences, as well as the experiences of many others who have healed and are healing through unique, unorthodox, and unusual ways. Your time to learn begins now. I met Kareen, I, I want to say in 2016, is that when it was? Uh, we were both beginning our training in somatic experiencing. We met in New York City and it was just like an instant kinship. And so I was always excited to have her on here before I even had a podcast. I was thinking she'd be one of my first guests. That didn't turn out to be what happened. <laughs> took a long time to schedule her. Um, I think with COVID and everything going on, it was difficult to to get us on a mic together. But this is a cool episode because there isn't a theme besides like two trauma therapists talking about life and about the work we do. Um, but we kind of just followed a flow and I think there's a lot of wisdom to pull from it. So uh, without further ado, I'm just going to dive into the episode. So I want to introduce my friend, Kareen, to the podcast today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I love, I know we talked about doing this for a while, so I'm super excited that we could do it now. I think we talked about doing this for two years. Yeah. Has it been two years since you started your podcast? I don't know. I mean, no. I talked about this with you before I started it because I, I remember I heard some of yours and oh, I thought I should yeah. start a podcast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's definitely been a year of actually actively trying to schedule. But um, yeah, yeah I, I met Corrine at, um, in New York City. We were both babies in the somatic experiencing field, right? We met at the That's first right. training. That's right. We both, we met in, it was beginning, yeah, the beginning year of, of SC was with Maureen Gallagher in New York City. And you traveled down from... Was it Woodstock? Where mm-hmm. were you traveling mm-hmm. back from? Yeah. yeah. And, you were and from I traveled <laughs> from Switzerland. <laughs> I remember thinking this person commute. is really far out. I love her. <laughs> and, you know, Karina really brings out, oh my gosh, she brings out like the, she's like my sister. It's like this sibling thing. So I have this like playfulness and she just like pulls out of me. And, and ever since you that and day, me both. well, ever since I met you at the city, even up until like five minutes ago before I hit record, every time we speak, there's some new layer of a thing that is so <laughs> similar that it blows my mind. Every, like our values, our ideas, our philosophy. It's amazing. So yeah. I'm, I'm just lucky to have you in my life. And now I get to share you with everyone. So that, that excites me. Too. Likewise, likewise. I mean, we're, <laughs> it's funny because I, <laughs> I went and got on a nicer shirt for this, for this occasion because I was wearing my sweatshirt before. Mm-hmm. And then I was telling you that this, you know, this is like an LA, apparently it's an LA kind of like a brand. But when I saw it, I just, I just saw the bold colors, like the tiger, the stripes. And mm. I was like, that is so beautiful. And there's something about like, um, I don't know. There's something about the vibrancy. Colors are very vibrant out here. Yes. Maybe that's something that really, really draws me to this place. There's such a like a celebration of like bold colors. <laughs> you know, I'm glad you're saying that because I think that's what it was for me too. You know, we, Karina and I were just talking about this before we went uh, for her record, but she's currently living in LA, near LA. Yeah. In, in LA, what's the proper way to say it? 
I think LA County. I'm, LA I'm County. just out, I'm out. I'm just outside of LA, but not far, like 20, 25 minutes from downtown. And what I was saying to you was that I, to my surprise, you know, seven years ago when I first went to LA, I was touring with a group called Rasputina. It's like a cello rock band, and we played. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> awesome. And we played the Trocador, which is like this really renowned, you know, old school club theater there. And I remember getting into LA and being immediately enamored with the the hills, the, you know, we, we visited this producer on Mulholland Drive and there mm. was this incredible house. And it was, it was also, it was like built on the side of a cliff and it was like five stories and each room was a different wow. story. It was just such a, it's such a far out uh, galaxy to me, LA. And so I, I've always loved it. And that shirt is just like, that's LA. Right it captures there. it, right? Like this. Mm-hmm. Rah, it really I, I had, I had this, you know, really, I had this like heart's prayer before coming out here. I don't know if it was so articulated in relation to this particular place, but this kind of heart's prayer to come into, um, come into relationship with or encounter with more of the wildlife here mm. I, or, or, or wildlife in general. I don't know. There's, there's something as beautiful as Switzerland is in, in many respects. There's something kind of very sterile about, uh, I know, no, I, I almost hesitate to say that because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm already then creating this kind of dichotomy between nature, culture, like, um, we've got some activity over here. That's not a problem for me. (laughs) This is real, everybody. This is real. This is real life. Yeah, we got kids at home. I got kids kids at home. home. We We have have dogs. Well, no, I mean, I I like that you're saying this because I think it's like you, you, you are allowed to say what your body felt, right? Like, it doesn't have to be a judgment. But what what did your body feel in Switzerland? Is different in LA, especially as a black woman. Like, I'm curious what that's like to be in Switzerland and then LA. Mm. What's that like? That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother track. Um, but no, it's, it's, it is an interesting, it is interesting. I'm seeing a lot of parallels now, but I like that reframe that it's much more about the experience. I mean, I would say that there is something to that as well. And when I, when I talk about the sterilization of like nature, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you could extrapolate on that and kind of talk about a kind of a taming of our wildness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And I would say that I, I would definitely say that that's an experience that felt true for, for me in Switzerland, but, um, also you know, there was like rumored to be like one bear, one lone <laughs> bear that would like traverse the Alps between, you know, Italy and Switzerland going back and forth that like uh, would be alleged to have been seen here or there. Um, and otherwise, you know, the, I guess the wildest animals that you would encounter in Switzerland would be cows, right? Mm. Like cows, like that are grazing in the summertime, which if you're not, <laughs> if you're not used to that, can be really scary. I imagine that. No, really. I imagine that. I really do. <laughs> you all no, have I, to trust me on this. I grew up in far near farmland. And I remember in the middle of the night driving down these long roads. Yeah. And there would yeah. just be like cattle under the moonlit uh-huh. sky. And it was terrifying. Oh, that's interesting because I also had lots of cattle kind of like, you know, grazing cows in my early childhood landscape. But those were typically like the cows we would pass on the freeway going from Chicago to Wisconsin to visit my grandmother. 
you know, who lived in a more rural area, but now Swiss cows, especially in the summertime or like spring, summer, when the babies are born and they're like, or they're like sort of like the, the young calves, but not just the calves, even the, the, some of the adults, they frolic, Mm. they frolic. I mean, have you ever seen cows in the wild, like um, in the wild, meaning like not like enclosed on a farm, right. but like, you know, they really, they, they have like the reign of um, a lot of land in the mountains in Switzerland in the spring and summer and like, you know, up into early fall. And they have such huge grazing areas that they can really be as kind of maybe as undomesticated as you can get for a domesticated mm. animal. I have never seen a wild cow. Nope. Yeah. I have no clue. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Very, very curious, very animated, very energetic, frolicking, running. It's really fascinating. And at times a little bit intimidating when you're like on a hike and you encounter totally. a group of cows and you don't know what they're going to do because they can be also unpredictable. Well, now you have the mountain lions. So here, yeah, I've not yet seen a mountain lion. And I have to admit, I'm a little bit nervous about that moment if it happens. Sure, um, I've, sure. I've heard they're a bit more um, um, reclusive. Is that fair to say? And I, I hope that that's true. That's what I've um, heard, yeah. But we do have um, California brown bears in the area. And I even ha- I have even seen, um, we've seen a few brown bears. In fact, I think one that tends to come around this area quite a lot. And uh, allegedly they're, they know when garbage day is. And so they come down looking for uh, garbage the night before when people tend to put their garbage out. Mm. So they're very, very intelligent. And I saw one in my backyard. Mm. A huge, huge furry brown butt just moseying across my yard. I was on a call with someone and I saw it and I absolutely squealed in delight. Okay. Cause it was the most exciting thing I think I've seen in a while, um, to see this. I've never seen a brown bear that close up that wasn't, you know, confined in some mm-hmm, way. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. When we first moved to Woodstock, the black bear, that's how I felt. It was so majestic. Really? Mm. And it was so big and shining and gorgeous, just like like nighttime, just walking through, you know? Wow, I, yeah. I remember that feeling of like this rush of life force came through me. And, yes. And like that humble feeling of like, oh, there, there are things outside of me that are bigger and more wild and connected to something I'm not connected to. And yeah. it was really, it was powerful. Still is when are I you, see them. Are you also equally fascinated by your own fascination? Oh, gosh, yes. I was because I, I, I was on this call and I saw this I saw this bear walking across our backyard and I squealed, like I said, in delight, um, you know, hopefully also with a healthy amount of respect and <laughs> for this very large animal that could hurt me, you know, <laughs> gravely if I was yeah. um, to misstep. But then I, I kind of as it was walking away, I squealed and it did not even look in my direction. Mm. It was so interesting to mm. me. And I was almost marveling at my own fascination with, you know, being a, being a creature that can be so enchanted and so kind of mystified by well, think, um, the wildness of another. See, that's what you're saying right there is like, I'm fascinated by my own fascination. 
mm-hmm. that, that that moment of witnessing the self, mm-hmm. like that that's like the core of the work we do. You know, I mm-hmm. think what's interesting, mm-hmm. I haven't even, no one even knows who you are, what you do right now. Well, that's not true. A lot of people <laughs> listening probably know you <laughs> from the work that you do, but anyone who doesn't, I haven't introduced you. I'm okay you. with that. I'm, I'm well, fine I, with that. I, I, I know you are. I'm not. I want to get there. Uh, and, but before we do, I think what's so fun about being with you is that we do heavy work, like mm. heavy, deep, intense, painful, beautiful, you know, trauma work a lot of the time with like big groups of people. Mm -hmm. And what's so special about you is we're able to like laugh our asses off when we're together. When I talk to other trauma therapists, things are so grave. And, you know, and like, and I don't want to be general, but usually that's my experience. Yeah. Um, But you, you come to it, you know, you come to it in this way where like trauma can be fun, you know, like, like, Trauma healing can be fun. It can be amazing. It can be psychedelic. It can be, to me, it's kind of like, I don't see the point of doing this work if I can't have fun. Like I mm-hmm. want to have fun. That's why I wanted to work with trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you say like, I, I was fascinated by my fascination, just that statement is in a nutshell, that's the work, isn't it? Like, Honestly, <clears throat> I I think this was one of the things about SC that really do you remember when so first of all I part so let me back it up a little bit part of the reason why I, I love kind of not getting first to the introductions lately is that one it leaves people a little bit more open in terms of the encounter right like mm. you know there's a way in which what when we talk about what we do, we can sort of set up a particular frame for people to experience us. And if there's something about not having that frame there of reference that's kind of liberating too sometimes. Um, and of course, it is helpful to know a little bit why is someone, you know, what what someone know what was someone is kind of steeped in um in in their life and in their work. Um, yeah, and I remember when you and I met on this SE training, do you remember that video on pronking that we watched? Oh, it yeah. was with the Springbok. Yep. And I, I think that was one of the moments for me that was like, it was like a green flag. It was like, okay, if one of the portals for healing, like one of the, one of the most beautiful, profound portals for healing is through like, And if if what we're doing is about getting in touch again with that life force and that vitality, I know I'm in the right place. Yes. Oh my, okay, tell us what pronking is. Tell us for those who don't know. Oh. (laughs) Explain what you're talking about because it's so profound. Well, it's funny because as far as I understand it, we don't know for sure what it is, but you know, like, and I love that. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want this sort of human hubris to say, you know, (laughs) say that we know exactly what animals are doing when they're expressing any kind of energetic. What is believed to be happening is it's almost like this kind of almost spring-loaded energy that um, uh, the springbok kind of release almost, they think it might be an expression of joy and like truly a vitality, but it kind of looks like a joy. So there's this video that we watch of the springbok after a rainstorm, right? This rainstorm, um, uh, I can't remember how long it lasted, but I guess it was was lasted for quite a while and the springbok were kind of huddled into this group together. And once the sun started shining again, 
it was almost like it was a almost like it was contagious too. They just started kind of in a very animated fashion, started springing up into the air, like and they did this thing called pronking, and it looked like popcorn because mm. it was just like <laughs> ping, 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 and it was like an expression of vitality. It was almost like the vitality on the other side of mm. maybe um, constriction or constraint in some way. It reminds me a lot of you know I know in SE and in in this kind of, uh, somatic, in the somatic healing world in general, we talk a lot about like, you like expansion and contraction, right. And the cycles of expansion and contraction that our, our state, our nervous system, our bodies are constantly in, and it reflects a universe, Mm -hmm. a world alive with expansion and contraction. And so I guess you could see the springbok and pronking Mm -hmm. as kind of one, one sort of expression of maybe, that expanded vital life energy, you know, mm. bursting forth. <laughs> it's like, and it looks yeah. joyful. It looks joyful. I'm so joyful. glad you brought it up. You know, I, I, I haven't thought of pronking in so long. I remember after watching that, it's all I talked about for like a year. And I just <laughs> kind of stopped talking about it and thinking about it. And I, I, you're reminding me how big that moment was for me because it was, it gave me a real visual and, and it's funny how you said, you know, we don't want to put everything through the lens of human, you know, we don't know what they're doing, but we do know what we feel when we see them do it. Mm-hmm. That's and so, right, yeah. right. Like I see, when I see them pronking or when I see my daughter, like skipping the joy in my body is like so ecstatic. Yeah. And so, so for me, there's, there's like a joy and ecstasy from seeing it. And then when I do it, I feel a joy and ecstasy. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad you're saying this. Cause I think it's important when people know who've listened to this by now in that traumatized state, the physiology is constriction because you're in like a chronic low level defense mechanism. Essentially you're, you're in defense against the world around you. So there has to be a constriction. So the opposite of that, like you said, the other side of the vitality, because constriction comes from your vitality too. your life force constricts you then to vitality might not be the right word. I would call it life force constricts you. But then the openness of that life force is maybe what we would call vitality, right? So, so they're just like, it's the same energy that shape shifts. And that's how I yeah. see it. And I, I just wonder how you've experienced that. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think what I love about that in particular, I think it, it also kind of takes us out of this kind of um, way of talking about the nervous system and framing it as kind of like good and bad states. Yes, yes. You know, like to, to be in sympathetic is a bad thing. Right. To be in the sympathetic, I mean, obviously in a lot of like popular um, media versions of, you know, or stress discourse, there's a lot of demonizing of the sympathetic nervous system, our fight flight response. Mm. Right. And, and I think this, I think maybe this has been touched on enough that that's shifted or starting to shift. And at the same time, what that speaks to me about what that tells me is that, you know, we are, um, vitality, like the, the fight flight response is the same system, right? right. That is, that is part of our joy, our expressions of enthusiasm and big joy and creativity and big energy. And like, I'm going to go run a marathon or like Mm -hmm. that's, or, or, or even, uh, you know, uh, anything, anything, anything we want to be engaged in or doing that requires, you know, a channeling of our life energies it mm-hmm. involves our sympathetic response in some way. And there's a beautiful, something that I bring up quite a lot 
um, just related to expansion and contraction and like the very natural way in which we begin this process from a, from pretty much from before birth. Uh, and this came to me from somebody working. I I'm, I'm trying to remember, I think it was out of, she was trained in body, mind centering. Um, but she told me this, she kind of told me the story about how when a baby is, um, in the later stages of development in the womb, right. The environment of the womb is getting more and more constricted. Mm. There's literally more, there's less space, Mm. right. Mm -hmm. There's more confinement. There's more of this kind of contracted sense of like, not a lot of room. And I'm even feeling my own sort of body and core kind Mm. of coming in and contracting. And that is a necessary and important early experience for the child to, um, to get them ready for birth. I remember working with a, a, I worked for quite a long time with a pediatric, um, researcher, um, in Switzerland, who also talked about this, especially children who are born prematurely, like I was, I was actually born eight weeks premature. So I didn't necessarily have this experience, which is interesting. Um, and how he, he talked about how important it was for a, a baby to be able to experience that early life activation of the nervous system. So as the womb is getting smaller and smaller, it's almost like compressing, almost like spring loading the child's nervous system in preparation for what comes on the other side of that, which is an activation. Hmm. The activation of the sympathetic response in the, in the baby's body is an important part of the birth process and the Mm -hmm. child's ability to feel that energy enough to uh, work with the mother's body to propel them outside of the womb. So you said I, you just yeah. said the, the word that I love using, propel. Mm-hmm. And I think it's such a great um way to explain trauma somatically and holistically, because that life force that comes in to constrict you, it's to build up this pressure to propel you to safety, right? Like when we think of fight or flight, even fawn or freeze, like freeze propels you inward to play dead, and fawn propels you to socially engage. And the fight or flight propels you outward to essentially survive a threat. So there's this, like, I see it. I love love that you're talking about how we're trying to destigmatize the shame and the negativity around sympathetic, you know, activation. Oh, yeah. Because it's like essential for survival. And and when you look at it from afar, how do I explain it? I I always think of weather. I think of nature. It's the easy way to explain it because we're not as emotionally connected to nature as we are to other people. Maybe not all of us, but I think most of us. And so when you see lightning like strike in the sky, that's such a celebration to me of this like huge Mm. activating explosive energy. Trees get struck down, animals die, fires start, people get struck in their car. You know, all this like quote destruction occurs. But if we kind of pull back from it, it's really this beautiful kind of like cacophony of life force without containment. You know, it's just like... You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, just like free life force. And when I think of trauma, I'm like, okay, that's really what it is, except for it's working against you. It got stuck. And so how do we celebrate it? How do we move it? Am I alone in, am I alone in um, feeling better in thunderstorms? No. I always felt better in a thunderstorm. 
Why? Tell me what happens for you. Well, I mean, there are people who could talk about negative ions and things like that. And maybe there is something to do with that. You know, there, there's something, to, there's something about that, that I might, I don't have a, as, as uh, broad an understanding of, but I, so I, I'm originally from the area of Chicago, the council of three fires um, land. And, you know, the thunderstorms there for anyone unaware I don't know what they're like where you are, Luis, but in Chicago, talk about electricity, Mm. webs, webs Mm. of lightning across the sky. I mean, when, when, especially in the summer, when the humidity would be, you know, at its highest point um, and a thunderstorm would come in that, I mean, the the air was absolutely charged, a hundred percent charged. It was so, you know, so wet, (laughs) it was so moist. Um, And I would, I remember so whenever I could, if I could, I would um, turn off all the lights. I would open all the windows. Oh, I have a very vivid memory coming back right now of doing this, Mm. sitting in my my mother's apartment um, across from this park. And one of the most intense thunderstorms I I can remember was rolling in. And I just sat on the sofa in the dark in this, there's a, there's a very particular smell that comes in the air with a thunderstorm. Um, at least the Midwestern ones that I experienced. And then I would just sit and experience the storm. And there was always something so profoundly calming to me about being in the heart of a thunderstorm. Um, I think we could probably analyze that to death. (laughs) Well, I don't Um, even want to. I'm just loving. I don't either. I just love the. Yeah. I mean, I I share that. The smell. Oh my goodness. To me, it's like pheromones. You know, it's like. Yes, it is. You know, the turn on with a human you get, whether you smell something. It's like, that's how I feel. (laughs) That electricity in the air is, there's a sexuality to it. There's like a sensuality. There's a a God, the goddess is like so big. And I, Mm. I I love that feeling and I love feeling rocked by it. Like I love when something's bigger than me. Me too. You know, and, and yes. It, again, I I keep threading it. I don't know if it's the Virgo in me, but I keep threading this back to the container of the trauma work we do. Mm-hmm. Because I I I think what's so interesting about speaking with you every time I do, but now, you know, publicly, is is just how much. Hmm, how your everyday living, just the way you live and see things, is through that practice before you even knew what the practice was called. And that's my observation of you. It comes again from what I experienced myself. But when I mm-hmm. discovered SE and everything else, we did animism and IRF, mm-hmm. like all these different system works that we've done, I'm always like, oh, that's the name for the thing I've been doing all my life. Right. It, you know, is that, do you know, right. is that your experience yeah. as well? But that feels so apt and in, 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 I think importantly apt because, and the, I think this very much challenges a kind of a, a sort of so-called Western um, idea or paradigm that, that these kinds of things are discovered. Yes, <laughs> right? yes, Like yes, someone plants yes. a flag and they've figured something out. No, maybe they have articulated something that is so fundamentally human. Mm-hmm. And that pause, maybe... Pause there, just pause there. Yeah, sure, <laughs> let's I, pause on that. That feels really important to me. Yeah. 
I've been tr- I've been saying this uh, in the ways of of um, like with SE, for example, somatic experiencing. I've been saying to my classes, you know, this isn't invented. This is something <laughs> that someone learned through um, their own body, through indigenous peoples, through uh, witches. You know, paganism. Like there, there are so many uh, fringe, ancient, unexplored to most Western eyes and minds, ways of living that are just been like this for thousands of years. And this gives people, I think, in a more like colonial context, it gives them a framework to understand it that would be too maybe um, outrageous for them. That's how I, I see it. I, yeah, I can, I can, I, and I think that really does speak to um, what I understand of like Essie's, for example, it's her origin story. Um, coming through as it did. First of all, I think some of the, some of what we're talking about is really an attempt to probe and dismantle some of this, some of these ideas though, this discourse, this like discovery discourse, like yes, one lone individual, a hero out of the dark, like on a hero's journey, like eh, all this mm-hmm. stuff about the individual, like, and the, and heroes and like state, you know, planting flags and discovering things. Mm. <laughs> We're throwing that out. <laughs> I'm not saying individuals don't do great things, no, no, but they no, don't do it alone. Absolutely. They don't, they don't do it alone. Okay. And so that's one of the, that's one of the first things I would challenge. And I think it also speaks to the origin stories of what I know of SC, which I think are really interesting. Um, and I, I, I believe that Peter Levine has started to talk about this more, which is um, the, the influence that he had, like some, you know, some of the, the, to, the tools and techniques, quote unquote, the technologies, I like to use the word technologies mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that SE employs um, were really inspired by, yeah, exactly. The way that like that he observed um, indigenous people, uh, ways of, uh, uh, of healing and ceremony. Um, and he was, I think he was heavily influenced in a number of different ways that then became a part of his own grappling with and later articulation of what he called somatic experiencing. And then I think in his, in the early part of SC, I, I don't remember if he talked about this somewhere. I feel like he, I did hear him talk about this somewhere, um, you know, in the 19, what was it? 1970s when this was, when he was writing a thesis for his PhD and he was beginning these sort of early conversations and explorations into this method and modality um, to reference the, where he was being inspired to reference, like, you know, maybe shamanistic traditions, indigenous um, cultures at that time would have lent itself to uh, discredit, like to be, Mm -hmm. you know, to have SEB discredited. Yeah. So I don't think that all of what he did, like what he obscured when he brought SE to the world was um, an attempt to kind of claim for himself some kind of discovery um, in as much as it was about wanting to, um, you know, kind of bring into the world a modality that under another rubric would have been uh, scrutinized or possibly even rejected. You're you're absolutely right. I there was a woman I had on my podcast, Anne Murphy Paul, and she wrote mm-hmm. a book called The Extended Mind. And she's a scientist, a scientific researcher. 
And we had this similar conversation about how she learned through all these studies, 20 years worth of studies, as she made this, created this book, explaining how we think through our bodies, right? Like we don't think in our brain. There's this idea of brain supremacy. And the the way she was describing it and the way she speaks about it in the book, again, it gives a reference for people from our culture, from the modern culture in America specifically, of something that would have been really fringe or discredited if she talked about it in a way that was much yeah. more body-based or even like pagan or indigenous. Um, yeah. She wasn't able to bring that in with that language. So she had to go through science. And now so many yeah. people are like following what she's saying about the workplace and education and, and classroom settings um, around how we think with our whole bodies and with our spaces, not just yes. with, our, with our brains. So I just find that an interesting intersection as well. Yeah, I love that. I really do appreciate I appreciate that. I think it's important as well now for people like Peter, and it sounds like for her too, to kind of acknowledge those the where those inf- I mean, there's I think there's more room for that now and there's even a um an expectation I would say mm-hmm. a sense of wanting people to account for um and it, for me it's not about a proprietary ship it's more about an honoring of the lineages I agree that your work is built on right and like that that's feeling more and more important to me too like um something I've been thinking about a lot like how do we you know, cause I, I really do feel strongly that the work that we, the, the, what's coming through each, each one of us is going to be a unique expression and it has to be, it has to be, it has to be unique because we're unique. And we are in this kind of beautiful kind of rhizomatic way, <laughs> mycelial network way, whereas we are, we are, you know, connected to, and the beneficiaries of the work that's come before us, right? The the deep, deep lines of uh, tradition and ceremony and lineage that we are not separate from, you know? And so there's something so beautiful about acknowledging that as well and acknowledging that at the time, that wasn't the culture that was receptive. It wasn't a culture that was receptive to that idea. But I think we're getting to that place now. I also love it because it feels kind of almost like a sneaky way. (laughs) It's it's the fugitive. It's the fugitive. It's total fugitive. It's like it's fugitivity to call call bio. Yeah, they're like in drag. You know, it's like they're they're, they're bringing it the way that it can be seen from a certain population. And I think what's so beautiful about what you're mentioning about understanding that uh, rhizomatic context, which I love. (laughs) What I think is important about that is... In, in my own experience, it, it naturally conducts a sense of generosity and humbleness around the work that I do, because I don't believe I discovered anything. It's, it's like, if I didn't discover it, it's not mine. And so because it's not mine, it belongs to the world. So there's this really easy, natural, true desire to share that, not yeah. to own it, not to mm-hmm, like bait mm-hmm. anyone with it, but just to let it be mm-hmm. this continuum of gifting the way I've been gifted, essentially. So yeah, I, I think yeah. that what you're saying to, to deconstruct that idea of the lone hero, uh, it, it creates more generosity and, and less burden of thinking, I own this thing. This is mine. It's exhausting to think something's yours. Hey, oh, exhausting. forget it. Forget it. I, I, yeah, <laughs> even just, forget it. Just forget it. Okay. 
It doesn't even work. No, I can't. I can't. No, don't do it. I don't have, the, I don't have the capacity to entertain any of that. Um, yeah. I was thinking about joy and, um, as, a, as, as a pathway to healing, mm-hmm. right. Um, mm-hmm something that we talked about earlier. And I think from my point of view, at least for me, like if you're coming in through a kind of an SE kind of framework, which I know is a modality that we're steeped in, it's not the only thing that we are, we have experience with that we, or that we bring in our work. I just want to name that. It just happens to be a, a reference that you and I both share. But I think even with, within that modality, what was very strong for me from the beginning was an emphasis on like the, what they called the healing vortex, mm-hmm. right? And, and bringing people into experiences of um, uh, where we can increase not only the capacity to be with what's difficult, but also the capacity to be, be with what is <laughs> um, a very natural part of our our expression of our life energy. I mean, mm-hmm. to be with joy, to be with enthusiasm, to be with, to be with big experiences, not just the difficult ones, mm-hmm. right? We don't realize that when we have limited capacity for being with the challenging things, we also have limited capacity to be with joy. Yes. I, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. And it's so funny because I, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but in, in yourself, but I'll talk about something that I notice. I'm not actually practicing this with anybody. Like I'm talking about how important it is, how amazing it is, how you know incredible this this practice is. But I haven't done one group or one session with someone around building capacity for joy. I think it's more fringe to build capacity for joy than it is to build capacity to go into the pain. And uh, more uncomfortable, actually. I think joy is really uncomfortable because there's, you know, when we're talking about this non-duality of charge and non-duality around trauma response, or or, I'll keep it with charge. For me, that always feels better, that term. Uh, It's the same thing, right? It's like moving the same way. So for me, it's like when, when charge comes in, if, if that, if that charge comes in, because I'm feeling threatened, I'm going to constrict. If that charge comes in because of joy, let's say, or like beauty or love, I'm going to expand. And I think our bodies have very little practice being in expansive places and feeling safe there. And I, I'm curious, like we, you know, I'm just curious where that goes for you. I think it's an important thing for people to hear and consider. I mean, for me, the, the one of the first things that it brings me to are some of the earliest um, experiences or opportunities that we have, you know, really from the time that we're very young to, to be with the bigness of those. So I think there's a lot of things, first of all, that can, that can impact on our capacity right from the beginning. And I just want to name that we don't start all from the same, necessarily from the same starting point. But, you know, we do know um, that a lot of the development of the early nervous system happens in relationship, right? Um, In fact, the whole ventral vagal social engagement system develops um, through relationship. We're not born with that system um, already wired. So, yeah. So talking about expansion or like talking about what what needs to happen, this actually is I've talked about this before, but I think it's even more expanded for me now. 
talking about what needs to happen in order for us to build this kind of robust, I like this, this idea of like a robust uh, system that can really, mm. it can be like as expansive as the ocean mm. that can really tolerate the, the, you know, all varieties of the, of the waves that might, might, you know, take place within the ocean, the, the huge storms, the tsunamis, and also, you know, everything in between mm-hmm. to become like the ocean, to have a nervous system that is as expansive as that, you know, and, to use the language of like maybe the window of tolerance to have that kind of window of tolerance that's really, really wide. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like, you're, you know, it's important that we have those early experiences where it was okay to feel the bigness of what we were feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is some, this is very interesting to me because I think there, there's mm-hmm. like a cultural dimension to this that feels really important. But like, if you were just to take the nuclear family model, you have, you know, typically in the nuclear family model, you have two adults uh, and you have children, right? And one or two adults and they, and they are, they are charged with the, uh, the nurturing of this young life. Right. And, and all that that entails, it's not, of course, not just the feeding and the, and the, and the safe shelter. It's, it's the, the ability to bear witness. It's the ability to be, um, to be this foundation for a child's own experience so that when they do experience the bigness of whatever they are experiencing, sadness, anger, whatever is coming up, whatever is rolling through, mm-hmm that there is, um, there's sort of ground, so to speak, on, onto which they can stand and feel held in that experience. There's, I remember one time, um, I think it was around the time my little boy, maybe for the first time in his life, or at least that I can remember, began reckoning with reality or this, the idea that he could lose one of us, mm-hmm. my, myself mm-hmm. or my partner one day. And it was like kind of that first moment of awareness that like death is a thing and like it can happen. And like you would, you know, suddenly my, one of my parents could be gone forever. And he came to me and he was so sad. Mm. I mean, the sadness in his little, I mean, he was so, so overcome with this idea. And I remember, you know, when he came to me just feeling, I don't know if you've had this experience before with your daughter, like feeling called to to presence in that moment, Mm -hmm. like feeling a true call. Like this is a moment for you to pause and be with this. Like these are the moments of I'm not present, create some serious rupture. Absolutely. I want to be with this. Yeah. And it's, and it's not even conscious. It's just like, it's Mm -hmm. like my whole being is just like, I'm here for this because I know this is an important moment. Mm -hmm. And it's an important moment of, of bearing witness without wanting, wanting to be to fix it, mm-hmm. to take it yes. away, yes. not, oh, not yes. wanting to make it better. I mean, when I was a child, I remember having the experience of, of something similar. It was a different context, but fearing losing my mother and having her response be, um, to assure me that that would never happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in my little young body who couldn't articulate what, what was happening, I knew that couldn't be true. Mm-hmm. And it, not only did it feel like it wasn't true, there was something almost more unsettling to yes. me 
yes. that I could that I couldn't just that she couldn't just tell me, or she couldn't just be with my fear. Yes, of that happening. Does That's that make right. sense? It it makes more than sense. <laughs> it makes body because <laughs> when I you know I had I've had a couple clients and students over the years have a similar situation like the way they I mean I think everyone has had this situation but they have it and articulated it the same way or clearly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's these moments that are actually um overlooked traumatic experiences uh mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. The, again there's no assault there's no abuse there's no in- obvious rupture but there's this internal thing coming up and out which is really big like an activation like you said fear of losing mom and then what comes to you is kind of like innocently on her end, a denial of the activation, not really allowing the activation to unfurl and flower and, you know, become composed and become something new, right? And in that, it's like the child is actually that that energy that was propelling up and out now starts propelling inward. And I think it overwhelms the child's little body. And that's like an example of a traumatic situation that we wouldn't think of as a traumatic situation, right? A hundred percent, hundred percent. And not only, I learned that not only is there necessarily a witness or room or space for me to feel the bigness of what I'm feeling, maybe even a step beyond that. Maybe what I'm feeling is too much for you. Yes. Maybe I perceive that what I'm feeling is too much for you. And in that potentially overwhelming my parent, I can't do that. Yes. See that, that one's a, I can't do that. Yeah. That's a big part of this because even like adult to adult, right? When anyone tries to soothe away someone's fear or their pain, it's because that person doesn't have the capacity to witness it. It, It's dysregulating them. So, you know, your your mother was probably dysregulated by your fear, didn't know Uh how to ground. And so then, Uh like you said, you walk away with this meaning of like, oh, I'm too much for her. Then you start uh-huh. fawning and like oh, mollify yeah. her. You know? The I'm so too much like, narrative. Yes. Oh, yeah. oh yes, I'm too you know? much. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and mm-hmm. I'm glad you bring it up because it's it's uh, like terminology wise, it's relational trauma, and it's mm-hmm. one that doesn't get discussed enough because it's not abusive. You know, it's it's not an abusive yeah. situation. Mm-hmm. Yet the remnants in the body are the same as abusive situations. Like what happens energetically and physically and in, in the nervous system. Yeah, I would, I would, I, yeah, that's something that I would definitely say feels really, um, really true in the, in, in, in what you named in the insidiousness of it. It's like, it's so, it's almost so every day. Yes. It's so commonplace. So common. That it's so easy to um, dismiss or miss it outright um, because, right. because it's so much a part of the water um, that we swim in. And I, you know, I remember one time years ago, I, I did a, I was doing a series of interviews with, with, um, they were people who I, who were mothers at the time. And, and I was asking them about their earliest experiences of their parents. Like, and there's a, I think there's a, actually an interview, it's called the attachment something interview. It's, um, based on attachment theory. Um, but one of the questions was related to, uh, I think the adjectives that you would use to describe your parents and invariably, I think the one word that would come up over and almost without fail was overwhelmed, Mm. overwhelmed, 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 overwhelmed. 
And, you know, obviously you have an intergenerational dynamic there where, you know, the, the, the parents of our parents who also didn't have the capacity to bear witness, mm-hmm. um, to our parents, right? Like there's, there's that kind of carryover effect. And then you also have this cultural, this cultural dimension that for me relates back to like the heteropaternalism, like the nuclear family being yeah. the sort of standard for what we what we consider family. The family is by default, you know, mm-hmm. the nuclear family. And that for me, especially in the earliest, earlier part of my, my journey was one of the biggest things I started to question. I was like, why the beep are we doing it like this? Oh yeah. Why, 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 why? Yeah. And I mean, it called on me this deep, deep longing to be in community, um, with other people, parenting, right? Like, I, and it's not like, I know it, it, according to attachment theory that children can really, um, they bond with maybe one or two adults or they, they kind of internalize a model based on like a, a limited number of adults. It's not like you can have, you know, 20 adults all have fulfilling the same role mm-hmm. for the child. And the question comes in, who's supporting the parents, right? Like, I'm just going to ask you that because it's not about the child as much as the parents' capacity. Exactly. And I mean, and when I, when I think about, and this, this is where I started moving in my thinking about around this a, a while ago, um, you know, to consider all of the ways in which culturally speaking, in a sort of West, typically Western colonial modernity sense we have been deprived of an experience of relationship that is beyond the human mm. that has, you know, gone into the ancestral realm or into a relationship with um, the spirits of mm-hmm. wood, water, air, right? Like mm-hmm. the spirits all around us, um, this expanded sense of like a broader ecology in which we are situated and how that comes to impact on our experience early life experience um, of relationship and what's even available to us in terms Mm -hmm. of relationship. What is even available to my mother, my father, um, the adults around me? Um, What's even available to them in terms of being in relationship? Mm -hmm. Because there's a whole lot that I think echo psychology um, really bears this out well. I think um, there's a whole lot of, of, of a burden placed on other human beings when all of these other relationships are I, I could not agree more. I, I That saved my life when I was 13. I've said this so many times in this podcast. I'm going to say it again. I got a book from Scott Cunningham. It was just called Wicca. And I was 13. I know that book. You know, everyone I swear has to. I know that book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was please. like a cult classic. And I remember getting this book at like mm-hmm. a bookstore mm-hmm. at the mall and mm-hmm. reading it. And immediately it was speaking, of course, in pagan terms, like more like Celtic pagan terms around animism and around these, mm-hmm. these different mm-hmm. spirits and goddesses and such. And there were two levels of it for me. The first level was being intersex and having a strange body that wasn't like other male bodies in the locker room. I saw deities that were also like hermaphroditic. And so I was like, yeah. oh, there's... I'm being represented, like first time I ever felt represented in my life visually. Wow. That was big. But then yeah. there was this other awareness of, oh my God, everyone's making fun of me at school. I'm getting bullied everywhere. At this point, I had been sexually assaulted twice. 
Mm. I, I can go to the trees. Mm. I, I, if I don't trust people yet, I can go to the trees. And it was this huge expansion of my body and psyche and spirit to say, there's so many realms that I haven't even looked at that love me already that I could get yes. support from. So I have capacity to deal with all these relational traumas until I find safe people. And mm. it literally saved me from suicide because otherwise I felt completely alone because I felt my only hope was other humans. Yeah, and, and I think it's so important. And that's why I love Daniel Four's work around, around animistic psychology so we can stop labeling people as schizophrenic because they talk to trees. And right. we can see that this is a very old and very important like birthright to communicate to these other beings and yeah, how, and how it, profound that is, you know? I wanted to say what a beautiful example you just shared too of like queering relationship, like really like the, the constraint placed on you and your experience in terms of having, having the kind of um, relationships with other people that would be nourishing and uplifting and supportive. It was almost like in a creative way, like I want, I don't want to use the word force propelled you mm. <laughs> into exploring what, what other relationship could be available to you. That's yes. a powerful example yes. of how I love this, this idea that bio talks about bio Kamalafi says life is promiscuous. Mm. Um, the promiscuity of life, the promiscuity of like the creative force mm -hmm. of the, your creative life energy, right. To find another Avenue, another way into expression. I think it's such a powerful example of that. It's beautiful. That's like tingling my heart when I hear you say that. It's such a beautiful mm. way to put it. It's like, like I've always identified as polyamorous. And mm -hmm. that's why it's not like the typical way of like having, you know, a bunch of partners. It's like yeah. everything yeah. to me is this incredible, gorgeous, like lover, you know, like totally. the, the breeze, <laughs> the wind, my thoughts, like everything. I'm like, I'm in love with everything. How can I choose one thing to be in love with when there's all this out here? So I oh my love gosh, that. I can relate. Yeah, uh, so absolutely. Gorgeous. We, we have to close and we haven't said anything about you. I mean, Good. No, we have I it. love we have that. It. I know you do. No, I mean, I, I do. I think it's great. I kind of want to propel you to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to propel you. He's to... forcing me to talk about myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's my job as a therapist. I want to propel you to just take a couple minutes to tell, if you want to, tell us like what you do, what you're doing, where to find you, anything that feels relevant. What's your what's fun right now? Like whatever feels right. That's the know, only natural. way I could talk about it, I think, because <laughs> I think that's why honestly, it. honestly, it's the only way I can talk about anything anymore. I you know, let's just let's just for you know, first of all, if, for anyone listening to this or watching this, this is a time capsule, which means that our thoughts may have changed from today. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> and oh, I reserve yeah. the right. <laughs> I reserve the right <laughs> to change. <laughs> okay. Yes. Anything oh, I, I love do it. Not, I mean, seriously. I mean, really. I saw a friend of mine was telling me, I just got to, I know we're going to wrap up, but real quick, a friend of mine was telling me about this, like, um, this, this like new AI artificial intelligence kind of like algorithm based programming where they can take like, um, like say Einstein, like all of the in different interviews Einstein ever did or like things that he said 
And you, and they can like put it into this, like, uh, this, this, uh, application that would allow you to like interview Einstein. And he would just like, yes, I've heard of this. And she, she, apparently she works with it in some fashion. And I was like, hold on a second. (laughs) Like, okay. Like one. Okay. That's kind of cool. I mean, I could imagine that'd be kind of fun, but then let's be clear. We're interviewing Einstein from like 19, you know, whatever period of whatever year he actually said that thing. Mm. I'm not going to take that to be Einstein's wisdom today. And that reminds me of something Daniel Four said, has said, you know, that the dead can change. The dead can change. And I take that to heart. And I, I mean, and when I heard that, I was like, yeah, the dead can change. And like, listen, I'm changing right now as we right speak. My cells now. are turning over. My cells are turning over. Don't you, don't you dare pigeonhole me into like this time point. So I always reserve the right to, um, to change. So there's your disclaimer. That is my disclaimer. And that said, I am currently (laughs) in this process of ever, it seems like it's ever changing process of being in a communal space called rooted, um, fostering and nurturing that space. It's a, I'm moving away from the word community um, for now because we are working on what needs to happen before we can talk about community. We're the commons to come to use a term by um, my supervisor and uh, kind of a professor, uh, mentor, Mary Watkins calls it the commons to come. And I think there's a lot of relational work. There's a lot of relational tending. There's a lot of relational um, kind of um, healing, uh, reclamation. Uh, We're cultivating like embodied liberatory technologies that are part of what it means to be in relationship again, especially in in the wake of structurally violent systems that have created racialization and gender binary violence. Um, and, and, you know, in response to that, we are, we are working on um, building the bridges back into relationship in Rooted, the Rooted Global Village. And that's the main thrust of my work right now. And it also incorporates a thread, an important thread, hugely important thread, of work related to somatic abolitionism that I do with Resma Menachem, um, which is an embodied anti-racism uh, racism and culture building uh, uh, modality. Mm. And I, you know, I'll say just from experiencing, I was enrooted for 12 months doing the study group, right? Um, from my grandmother's hands. And Kareen holds such a beautiful space, such a, like when you're talking about that parent, that that lends their nervous system to create more capacity you do that really well Mm. and i can feel that from you and with you in space as your friend when we hang out and as when we're when i've been in those spaces with rooted so you know anyone listening i I know i think there's you don't just accept people every day like isn't there a process a wait list or something Oh, there is. Yeah. And we're, we're, we kind of, um, a bit, uh, what do you call it? it? There's not like a set, there aren't set times of the year. Usually it's like three or four times a year. We open up rooted for people to join. And I think we have one coming up soon. And then one in April, 
again. I strongly, strongly suggest people to check it out. Um, it's magical. You know, I've had people coming through my course that have found me through the rooted work. And one of which is becoming uh, one of my community managers with like uh, an online space I'm creating. And she's amazing. And she wouldn't have found me if it wouldn't been for Rooted. So oh, wow. talking about like giving praise for who, what came before you and what's gifted something to you. You know, I've been gifted some amazing students and, and people to meet through mm. Rooted. So I thank you for creating that space and creating like, a, I guess, being clear in intentions to draw in this, the these beautiful people that just... Mm. You know, I, I wouldn't have found in my life otherwise. Um, Amber McZeal, who's been on the show several times, people love her. I found her through Rooted. I mean, like, Kareen has yeah. a knack for finding gold and uh, calling it in, uh, probably because you are gold and you're, you're calling more of it in. So so I really, I thank you for that. And and I strongly encourage y'all listening to check it out. Well, what's the website? Where can they go to learn about it? Rooted and embodied com. Great. And you're doing mm-hmm. you're doing another free summit in April. Um, what do you call yes. that? Yes, I think we yes. The plan is that we're gonna do another tending the roots, um, which will be in April. But of course we'll share any details about that. Yeah. If you yeah. join, I think if you're on the wait list, we will we'll of course we'll share information about that. Too. Great. And Tending the Roots is incredibly, again, generous, free, the global summit that you can join. And, and I don't know if yeah. you call it a summit, but it's like a global experience where all these different teachers come in and they, they talk about different holistic, decolonial, anti-racist, you know, embodied somatic practices really around trauma. Oh, yeah. Right? And we're really focusing on, uh, on, on the liberatory end of things like Trauma is important and liberation is, is the, the kind of the shift that we're, we're kind of talking about now, mm-hmm. how to liberate life energy, how to mm. liberate, 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 liberate. I love that. Love that. Thank you. Thank you, my beautiful friend. It was fun to be with you, you and share you. Yay. Good to be with you too. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. My question for you is, where do you feel the episode? Take a breath. And just notice, what's your body doing right now? Sit with it. Let it speak to you. And let whatever comes up, come up. And your only job is to listen. For all the wisdom you need is right inside of you. To learn more about my work, you can visit holisticlifenavigation.com and sign up for my mailing list. You'll receive a bi-weekly newsletter with specific monthly topics, free resources, and upcoming events. You can also follow me on Instagram. If you like my podcast, please leave a review and share. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give into mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between 
a nutritional craving and an emotional craving, as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.